0: Hello and welcome to Workle's Workplace Happiness Podcast. I'm Mark Price, the founder of Workle, a platform designed to help everybody get happier at work. I used to be the boss of Waitrose and the deputy chair of the John Lewis Partnership, and it's there that I began my interest in how we work and how being happier at work can not only transform an individual's life, but transform an organisation. On this podcast, I find out how happy people really are at work and discuss what steps they take to get happier. I'm absolutely delighted on this edition of the Workplace Happiness Podcast to be talking to Kate William. Now, Kate is a geospatial analyst, and uh, she founded her company, uh, Geolect, about three years ago now having spent time uh, doing all kinds of analytical intelligence work uh, for the US Department of Homeland, uh, but also working uh, with uh, GCHQ in the UK. So there's lots of interesting spy analysis stuff we're going to find out from Kate. But, But Kate, welcome to the podcast. The first thing we want to know is what is a geospatial analyst?
1: A geospatial analyst, that is a complex question with actually a very simple answer. Um, So a geospatial analyst, a modern version of a photographer. So we make digital maps and we incorporate all sorts of data intelligence into those maps. So we build products and solutions centered around the context of location. So where things happen and when they happen. But geospatial analyst is understanding different trends in location and time.
0: And so how on earth do you become a geospatial analyst? Uh, were you super good at maths at school or college?
1: So it, it was part of it. So the um, discipline that I focused at university discovered this geographic information systems, um, which is the school thing that you have to, um, you know, take part in to then become a geospatial analyst. Um, so it was part of my program at James Madison University. I have always loved maps. Math. Maths have always been my vision from... When I was a little kid and we were around quite a bit because my dad worked for the U.S. Navy, every time we went somewhere, my parents gave me a map to navigate. Um, So it's always been a passion of mine all that you could integrate technology with maps. Um, I jumped on that right away at university. It was towards the late part of my education. I discovered it and was able to incorporate it into my degree. And from there, after graduating university, fell into some government jobs that were focused on geospatial intelligence or geospatial analysis.
0: So were you really keen on geography at school?
1: Yes, yes. I loved geography. When we would geography quizzes, I would always win them because I I just loved visualizing geography was was one of my favorite subjects at school.
0: So it's that combination of geography and maths that proved to be a winner for you.
1: Yeah, it's it's technical, it's computer science that's mixed with maps essentially. Um, just known by different names.
0: And when you went to James Madison University what did you go to study?
1: So I'm uh, really lucky to be part of a unique school within James Madison University called their Integrated science and technology where they focus on different disciplines in science mixed with business applications uh, which is why GIS or in information systems was such a great fit they were able to teach us the technical piece of it but apply it Problems throughout my I study various GIS applied to environmental science problems, uh, studied biotechnology,
0: and and so when you were going through uh, your university course, did you have any idea then of the job you wanted to do when you graduated?
1: Not not a clue. I had you know I had a guess um, of the types of jobs I could do, but I genuinely had no idea what it could actually I lived in the Washington, D.C. metro area, and so I was naturally around a lot of government employees. I knew government potential and understood where my um, degree could take me within government, but I didn't really understand the application outside of that. So um, I didn't really understand what jobs were either. Um, I graduated, I genuinely had no idea what to do, even set up with a, a degree that, would teach, would, would go into kind of a consultant job. That was actually my first job was in a consultancy just at geospatial and abilities in government organizations.
0: And, and who was that working for, Kate? Who, who gave you your first job?
1: Hamilton, um, they are a defense consultant in the US. Um, well, big cross defense and government. They were my very first job about six or seven months after I graduated university. Um, I was able to secure a really good job as a consultant with them working on government contracts, looking at Homeland Security, how to use MAP to better understand um, the critical infrastructure.
0: And, and Kate, tell me, how in that first role, that first job, how did you use your skills? How did they benefit the the US government?
1: So I could go in, so the, the best way to do when the Department of Homeland Security was first stood up. It was an organization at that time in the U.S. in early 2004. Um, they struggled to understand where their threats were to critical infrastructure. So they a lot of time aggregating across the state and local level, but on a national level, quite put it all into one picture. So I used my skill sets to understand how to integrate the data that they had into a mapping context to understand where threats would occur the hurricane came through, what was the first infrastructure that was down, and how would emergency services respond? Where should they go first? So it was, it was pin, maps to pinpoint those vulnerabilities, but then to prioritize response to those efforts. So myself and a small team of other people with sets, there were about five of us, able to go in and, and kind of vamp how they looked. At the data. Um, and taught them how to look at it in this geospatial way, which then enabled them to better respond to, to national crises. Um, it helped them to better stand up um, organizations like the Federal Emergency Management Agency in terms of responding to these either natural disasters or man-made um, incidents.
0: And and on, on the back of 9 was there, a, is it that that prompted the need to have a better understanding of where these risks existed in the United States.
1: Absolutely, there were um, quite a few different events that took place over the course of about five years Um, and 9-11 was kind of the trigger for all of those to look across government organizations and ensure that there was a data gold standard and a way of looking at geospatial information um, across government organizations so that everyone was looking at the same picture. there were a couple of other events like Hurricane Katrina that also occurred, you know, in that similar timeframe, which really brought to light the need to be able to quickly respond to, to incidents that affected, you know, an entire region of the U.S. So it's, um, it, there were quite a few different things that caused them to, to kind of wake up and say, we, we need to have this effort across government.
0: And the work that you did, how did that change the way that the government were thinking about responding to those kind of crises?
1: Yeah. So the, the, there was a major change, um, which is why when I started, I was very lucky at the time that I started, it was good timing basically, um, because there was a, there was a need for this type of, um, these types of capabilities and the more that we were able to show them the benefits of looking at things in a geospatial way versus reading a report or looking at a database of numbers um, did help and and it's still happening today. Um, It's it's not a full transformation yet, um, but you know 18 years later they're still working on being able to spread this far and wide and the technology has evolved in such a way that it's, it's easier now. Um, when I first started, it was all a very manual process. Um, so it took a lot of time to convince these organizations that they did need the change, and to be able to prove the value um, took a little more time than, than it would today.
0: And, and so that must have felt quite re- rewarding. There you are 22 years old, you've gotten into to, to do this work to support the government, and you've changed the way they think about risk and where risk is gonna happen through looking at it through mapping rather than from dry reports. And and did you find that there was an instant positive response to you presenting the data in a more visual way?
1: Absolutely, a lot of people understand things visual. There's a lot of visual people out there. And so the reward that we were able to get when we kind of showed them how they would traditionally look at data um, and then how we were looking at data. It was incredibly satisfying um, because we, we would show up to these conventions and these big conferences and you know, display our capabilities and everyone would ooh and ah, um, because it was something they just hadn't seen in action before. Um, and it just brought everything to light. When you see it on a map, it just, it just makes sense. Um, so it was extremely rewarding.
0: And so where did you go from there, Kate? I mean, so, so did you, were you working as part of a team when you first went in? Yeah,
1: I was. I was part of a small team. There were five of us. We traveled all over the U.S. Um, we held these working group meetings across government organizations every other month. Um, and I did that for about four years. Um, and it, the, the team grew a little bit as as um, throughout those those five years. So we went from a team of five to... I think by the time I left, we were about 10. Um, and then I actually went to work for one of the government organizations that we were contracted to. Um, so I, would, I continued to do the same thing. I just did it from the government side. So, so I switched that- over. It, it was an interesting switch. Um, it's something that happens quite often in the D.C. metro area where you'll have someone as a um, commercial consultant sitting in a government entity um, and then quite often they'll switch to govy as they call it. Um, so it was it was really rewarding actually. Um, and everyone on my previous team at Booz Allen was fully supportive of it, and I think that was the nice thing. It gave me the you know the, the courage because I didn't burn any bridges. It was I left on a, a good note and just kind of worked on the other side. Um, and so I continued working with the same team for quite some time once I went over to the government side of it. Um, and it was it was fun. I, I loved switching over to government. It was really enjoyable because it opened up a whole new world of, of opportunities as well.
0: And does it feel different? A lot of people ask the question, you know, government, is it the same as working in the private sector? So how, did it feel the same or did it have different conditions around it?
1: it? It was different in the sense that when you're working for a commercial organization, the primary driver is always going to be, what money are you making for the business? Um, so there's commercial drivers in the private sector that there aren't in, in public sector. So that switch over um, is, is a big difference. Um, and I, you know, there's positives on both sides. Um, I think there was a bit of, because I was about, I think, 26 at the time um, when I switched over, I think there was a sense of relief that um, I was going over to the government side and didn't have kind of the pressures of, you know, how, how much money did we make this quarter? Which is funny enough, because then I went on to start my own business 10 years later. But um, it, uh, there was a relief at that point. I knew that I had a lot more to learn and I knew that the government would be a good organization for me to be able to kind of spread my wings and, and go across quite a few different mission areas.
0: And if there was one aspect of that private sector you could have brought into the government work, what would it have been?
1: Um, innovation, um, with Booz Allen, and, and this is part of why we started Geolect, um, but it all centered around innovation, um, having people that were willing to act quickly, get things done and not have to go through level after level of bureaucracy to get it done. And those that, that is something that I, I would have loved to pull over. Um, now, I was lucky in the organizations that I worked in within government that didn't have as many restrictions, but it, it's painfully slow sometimes to get things to happen and to get things to, to change.
0: And so with Buzan for about four years, then you moved and you're in the government. So talk us through what you were doing with the government.
1: So my first job with the government, um, I went to work for a counterintelligence um division within the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. So what that means is I helped to look at different counterintelligence operations, meaning looking out for people who were collecting intelligence against us, um, but also looking at how our you know, our, um, our personnel out in the field were conducting themselves. So how were they protecting themselves when they were going out in the field? Where were they most vulnerable? What regions of the world where where the most reports coming from and keeping kind of a, a situational awareness tab on counterintelligence issues across the world. Um, and that was quite exciting because it was my first dive into the, the world of secret information. Um, and it's, you know, as a young person, that's a really exciting thing to get involved in. And it, it gives you a sense of pride um, as well to be involved in that community.
0: And, and tell us about the, the management style within that, that unit.
1: So we had um, it was a small unit. Um, I think there were only about i want to say fifty or seventy five of us um, in an overall agency that um, was in the you know tens of thousands. Um, so it was I worked on a team of three people um, we had a, a direct branch chief as they're called, um, and then she reported to the director of the office so we kind of had a, a, almost a one, one step away from the director of, of the um, counterintelligence unit. So it was a small environment, which was really nice because it gave us the freedom to you know, voice our opinion. When we had ideas, we could bring them up because of the structure. Um, and that was similar structure then across all of the other different units that I worked in across that agency.
0: And, and was that one of the happiest places you worked in?
1: I wouldn't say that one was, um, across the, across the whole, um, agency. When I worked for them, there were so many different teams that I got involved in that was up there, but it wasn't the happiest. Um,
0: so which was the happiest
1: The happiest was, um, I got to spend two years detailed out to the U S secret service. Um, and that, that was the most exciting, the most exhilarating, um, most rewarding in what we were able to accomplish within that, that government organization. We worked directly with the protection teams who um, you know, would, would go out protecting the president, First Lady. Um, this was from 2010 to 2012. Um, and it was it was exciting um, because of the change that we made happen there. So I was one of two analysts that was detailed out to the Secret Service. There were only two of us. Um, and we worked across the whole organization and helped them to change the way that their agents understand threats um, to whoever they're protecting. Um, We worked these big events, so we got to travel a lot. Um, We traveled with the whole team of Secret Service agents and we helped them to understand, um, you know, where and when threats were likely to happen during these major events. Um, In fact, the UN General Assembly that takes place every September we, we worked that and we worked um, with the agents in the field. We, we built mobile applications so that they could report directly to us in a watch center and we could see reports popping up on the map. We could get it, you know, the information out to the agents when they needed it. So that one was very, very exciting. And it was fun too. It was, it was incredibly fun work. Um, and the other happiest, because they're kind of equal, um, my next assignment after that, I moved out to Bahrain and I was the analyst assigned to the whole of the US Navy's Fifth Fleet um, and the UK's um, component command out there as well. So that one, again, incredibly exciting because of the work that we got to do. Um, We were involved, I was involved with, you know, a whole host of things that I can't talk about here, but were incredibly exciting. Also, again, because we were implementing change, we were changing the way the Navy was looking at data and helping them transform. It was digital transformation, really. Um, we help them go from looking at paper-based maps to understanding live data and how to incorporate live intelligence to, to gain these insights. So, um, yeah, that, th- those two were definitely the, the happiest in in that part of my career.
0: And and just for a moment, then, wh- which was the least satisfying?
1: Oh, um, so I did this this um, very short stint at um, Department of Homeland Security. Um, I was assigned over there, again, working working alongside the original team that I worked with at Booz Allen. Um, and it was a great team, but the organization itself was was not organized. They were, they were I think, confused about their identity and what it was that their mission was. Um, and so it was a tough place to work because there was quite often tension, because there was much change. Um, We were getting direction from leadership, you know, almost on a bi-weekly basis that we had to keep shifting focus, which causes kind of an upheaval in the the working level, especially the analyst level, because you don't know what to focus on. Um, And so I I think that was kind of, that was my least happy time. Um, And I I only ended up staying there for a very short time because of that.
0: And and when you think about both the happiest and the, the, the least happy, what is it in, in your mind makes a job uh, a happy job or a less happy job?
1: I think it's the teamwork. Um, it, it's the team that surrounds you, but it's also the buy-in for the mission. If you're doing something that you truly believe is, is making an impact, is, is going to make a difference um, somewhere, you know, small or large, whatever that is, um, I think that creates a sense of accomplishment, which then leads to a happy feeling. Um, And if you're working with people who have that same kind of vision, um, same mentality, then it's this, that team environment, it becomes contagious. Even if you walk into work one day and you're in a bad mood for something that has nothing to do with work, you can quite easily have your mood switched because of the people that you're around. And I think a lot of that stems from leadership. If you have leadership that's presenting that good example, and they're passionate about what they're doing, then that kind of just is contagious, it, it, it goes out to the rest of the workforce. Um, and those are the biggest differences I noticed in jobs that I wasn't happy in, um, t- wasn't satisfied and those that I was.
0: So for you having a real sense of purpose, doing something that makes a difference is the thing that drives you most in terms of your workplace happiness? And so so you were doing all this amazing work at such a young age with the U.S. government, Um, and then you decided to set up your own business. Yes. So so tell us all about what led you to make that decision to leave all that fantastically exciting work with the U.S. government and set up uh, Geolect, uh, and then just talk us through how you did it. Because there are lots of people that listen to this that want to set up their own business. And you know what are the first steps you take? So what decided you to go? And then just how about did you go, did you go about setting it all up?
1: Um, so it's, it is a, a funny story or an interesting story. So um, going back to one of the jobs that I was happiest in, in Bahrain, um, I met a, a lovely gentleman named Richard William out there who was the UK Royal Navy um, liaison to the US Fifth Fleet. So, we met out there, um, continued our relationship. I went back to the u s He came back to the u k and, and we continued um, and Then we decided to take a huge chance and get married <laughs> so i um I left the u s government. Um, we did try for some time to find a job here in the u k um, staying with my agency, but because I had just finished an overseas tour, it was going to be another five years before I was able to come back so i um i I left. I left the government, moved over to the UK and was working for a small, another startup. Um, They're a scale-up company now. Um, But I was working, looking at um, remote sensing data, so satellite data, and how you can um, use that to predict things like crop yields and um, forestry issues, water pollution. Um, And it was a completely different job, a a completely different, it just what it wasn't my area of expertise um but what it did is it, it gave me a great understanding of what you could do in the commercial world with some of this um data outside of what i only knew in the commercial world which is government applications um so richards um you know after after we got married and i moved over here he was just about to, to start the process of getting out of the royal navy um and so almost on a nightly nightly basis, we'd have conversations about what I was doing in, in my current role. Um, and some of the frustrations that we had from a government perspective, going back to the, the innovation and the change piece of it. Um, and so we probably over the course of about five months, we talked about it frequently that, you know, we could probably do this on our own. We could do a consultancy um, perhaps. And then after, I don't know, um, probably one too many nights with one too many glasses of wine, we both decided to go ahead and both leave our jobs and start Geolect. Um, so it was a bit of a rash decision, but there was a lot of conversation that re- led up to it. Um, because we just saw an opportunity. We saw that there was there were other companies that were starting to pop up doing things that were similar to what we did in, in the government and intelligence world. Um, but. There wasn't any, everyone was taking the environmental route. So they were all going and starting these companies that were looking at similar issues to what I was looking at in in the job that I was in. And Rich had a really strong understanding of how you apply these. Um, We worked really closely together in Bahrain. He used a lot of the products that I had been creating to look at counter piracy issues and, and so on. So we had a good balance of him as the operator, me as the the tech person, um, and the the intel analyst, and together we were able to come up with an idea of geolect and and how it would apply to commercial problems, but then how we could actually go back into government and try to make a difference as well.
0: And so, glass of wine, you yep. saw an opportunity. Yep. Uh, you both <laughs> handed in your notices. Mm-hmm. So what yep. what happened then? Did you get an office? Did you? How did you think of the name? I mean, what, just what do you do?
1: Um, So it was kind of the topic of conversation 24-7 in our household. So, um, you know, day and night, we just discussed, we went through a a whole, you know, selection of different names. We knew we wanted it to be something around geospatial intelligence. Um, And we knew we wanted it to be kind of a unique name as well. So we went through all these different kind of word smash, um, you know, sites that you can go on. Nothing kind of, nothing kind of clicked. Um, and we have two dear friends um, who run a marketing, um, a digital marketing business who are incredibly um, creative when it comes to, to this. So we actually went and had a nice long wine lunch <laughs> and came up with the name um, while we were sitting around a table at, at a pub. So we had a a list of all these different um, options, and Geolect just stood out as, it it sounds mature, it sounds like something you should know about. Um, So we picked that. Um, So that was kind of the first step after um, the the initial conversations. Next step was actually getting it registered, um, which we had no idea how to do that. (laughs) Um, So again, we reached out to people who knew what what they were doing to ask for advice. And from there on, we started to build the business plan. Um, We knew that this was something that was gonna take some investment. So we put our heads together and just spent all of our time building out kind of the the financial forecast, how we were actually gonna build a product and how we were gonna sell it, what markets we could sell into. Um, And we built a kind of mock-up of the, the dashboard that we wanted to create. So the actual product we wanted to sell into businesses we built a prototype um, and then we just started going around to people that we knew. We used Rich's network of people, you know, colleagues that had also retired from the Navy and gone out into industry. We called them up and we said, Hey, can we have a meeting and talk through an idea? Um, You know, from an insurance perspective, what can you guys give us in terms of advice and how this might fit into the market? And, and we went from there and it, it was successful before we expected it to be successful. So, about four months after we founded the company, and we were still going through the whole business plan, um, we were working off of Rich's pension, um, so we had pennies to our name, but we were trying to make it all, make it all work. Um, we went and had a meeting with one of Rich's friends um, who worked in the, in the London market in insurance. And he said, "What you guys put together is exactly what we need from a loss prevention perspective in insurance." can you come back in two weeks and meet with the director of loss prevention and pitch to him? So we kind of thought nothing of it. We thought, okay, another, you know, informational meeting where we're just going to discuss ideas. Um, so we went in and by the way, at this point, we still just had a prototype. We didn't have a functioning product. (laughs) Um, so we went in and, you know, talked around the idea. And at the end of the meeting, the director of loss prevention said, we want to, we want to buy a subscription. Um, where do we sign up? (laughs) He said, okay, all right, we now need to come up with a business model. We need to come up with a product. So we rushed home from London that day um, and put our heads together and and built a product within a couple days. Um, And that that was our first success. That was our very first customer and it came quite quickly um, before we even had the business plan finalized. So what that did for us was it gave us incredible um, substance to the business plan because we had a customer. We had a paying customer, not just a trial. Um, And so about six months later, so a full year after we founded, we ended up going for a seed funding um, raise. And we were able to secure a a small amount, it was about 250,000 from friends and family. Um, So that kickstarted us really, that enabled us to then go get an office, hire our first three employees. So we had, um, well, there were three of us at first, it was myself, Rich, um, and our first employee, Will. Um, for the first five months Um, and then we hired a fourth uh, and then we hired a fifth and within let's see we are almost it's almost two years later now and we're up to 20 people so it's it's been a a very an evolving process we have stuck to the plan fairly well um, but we've had to adjust um, where and when we needed to
0: so everybody will want to know what's the hardest thing about setting up your own business? And what's the most rewarding thing about setting up your own business?
1: Actually the same. Um, so the, the hardest thing is knowing that we're running a business that has the livelihoods of 20 people uh, you know, in our hands. Um, and you know, it's, it, it's a team effort. We, we're all responsible for it. We all put in, we all ha- understand the risks in working for you know, a, a company that's fairly new. Um, but that, that's definitely what keeps us up at night. Um, when we don't hit, hit a certain sales target, we think, oh, how, how, you know, how, how long does our cash flow go? And, and it's that stress, um, especially when you come from the very safe environment of government and military, where you never need to worry about that. Um, that's the hardest part of, of setting it up. Um, you know, all the other challenges almost pale in comparison. Um, but that's also the most rewarding because we get to see people, come in, especially young people um, who are straight out of uni, who, you know, are looking for the next great adventure in their life, and we're able to help give that to them. Um, and that part is incredibly rewarding. To see them grow, to see them, you know, shape their own career. It's so cool.
0: And and you've taken the the workplace happiness test. And talking to you, you certainly seem very happy, <laughs> even given some of the stress of keeping the money yeah. coming in and people being employed. So, so tell me, when, when you took the Workplace Happiness Test, how did you score?
1: So I scored pretty high. Um, I scored, I think it was a 96%. Um, and it, it's, the, the questions were really interesting to me from a you know, management perspective. Um, because we're founders of the company, we get to set a lot of the, the process, you know, all the processes that we have in place here how we manage people, how the teams are managed. Um, so we're a little bit biased because we're, we're, we're running it. But I will say that there is so much buy-in from the team and we give so much ownership to every single member of the team. We're not really the ones that are shaping the culture. It's the rest of, rest of the team. They're shaping how people are happy. All the silly little things that we do on a weekly basis to kind of bring laughter into, into the workplace, they're doing that. Um, and that adds to the happiness it wouldn't be the same I don't think I would score as high if we didn't have a team of people who work hard um, but play hard and can can laugh when it's stressful
0: and it, it, it's almost churlish for me to ask this question but where did you drop the four <laughs> percent
1: I think I felt too bad putting <laughs> the highest score on all of them
0: <laughs> but, but it's fantastic across all six areas so reward and recognition, information, empowerment, well-being, a sense of pride, which you clearly have, uh, and also being developed that you've scored so highly. So you've clearly made the right choice moving to, to set up your own organization. And, and tell me, what does the future hold? Where do you see uh, Geolect in, say, five or 10 years' time?
1: So we have pretty, pretty high ambition for Geolect. Um, we have experienced 11 times growth in the last 12 months, um, and we want to continue on that um, path. Um, we have major ambition to kind of tackle um, the US market. So we've done really well here in the UK with regard to defense, um, and we've done well in the US in the cruise industry. Um, but what we now want to do is expand in the US on the, on the defense and government side of the house. So. Um, you know, mo- most startups want to do the same thing. Um, so we're kind of aligned with, with others, but when potential investors ask us why we're special, um, we, we've we done it, we've got the drive and ambition to make it happen. Um, and beyond that, we want to also then start targeting other markets, um, Asia Pacific, um, Europe, we have some good ins, um, but also to build a place that people want to work. Um, it's equally as important to us to grow the business so that we're all rewarded from it um, as it is to build a place that people actually get excited to come into. Um, People want to work. And what we found is then we get more out of people from that. The, The business as a whole gets more out of people from that. So we want to grow really quickly, which also present some challenges to us because we want to maintain the culture that we have now with a, a company that's 20, 20 people strong when we're 100 people strong. Um, and so that that's something that we need to be really careful about and, and understand our recruitment process and have that kind of down to a science so that we can maintain that culture. Um, we want to give people the opportunity to work overseas. We want to... Um, You know, we want to grow big, we want to grow fast. Um, And if Rich was on the call, he always says world domination. (laughs) So (laughs) I'll throw that in for him. But but yes, we are very ambitious. Um, I think in five years, there's a good chance that we will um, be acquired by another bigger organization. Um, And so we've kind of built a a shares option um, scheme for employees as well, so that they can kind of reap the benefits um, if that does happen.
0: And, and you must be spending so much time building the business. I mean, just growing it at that rate in the UK is huge, but then wanting to do that around the world. So how do you find time to do all that you need to do on a daily basis to grow and service your current customers and then have the bandwidth to think about opening in America or opening in Asia Pacific?
1: It's really challenging. Um, it, it's hard to maintain that work-life balance, um, especially as a married couple running the business and trying to grow it, because the, every conversation revolves around that. Um, and we just make time. Um, we we just make sure that we prioritize what we need to take care of. We delegate what you know other people can can help manage as well. Um, that has been the trickiest part from the the get go. Um, as we bring in new team members and all of us, especially the first four of us that were part of it, our biggest challenge was always delegating to to the new people that we were bringing in. Um, But that's what helps us move forward. That's what's going to help us actually be able to expand in other areas of the world, which again, goes back to that culture piece. We have to make sure that we bring people on board that fit that culture, that match personalities, match work, work ethic, Um, to ensure that when we do delegate stuff and when roles and responsibilities are split out, um, that people are acting the same way that we would, that they represent GEOLECT the same exact way any of us would. Um, And so it goes down to that that culture and making sure we give ownership to the people in the company that want it um, in terms of what, what they go out and do.
0: And again, people listening to this and thinking about their own business Will have got a great insight into both the excitement and the challenge. But is it is it a nine to five job? Is this something that you can do Monday to Friday, between the hours of nine to five, or or just does it fill your entire life?
1: It it fills your entire life. Um, you do have to force yourself to stop, um, and you have to take those breaks because otherwise you you do start to burn out, but it's more than that. You, you start to hit a brick wall where you're not as productive. So you have to step away from it occasionally. Um, so what we have found ourselves doing is most weekends where we used to work through the weekend, we now force ourselves to, to take a break. Um, and that's, that's helped us, that's helped us become um, more productive, funny enough. Um, but it, it's most certainly not a nine to five job, um, starting your own business, is it's a full time all the time um and you just have to force yourself to learn when to take breaks when appropriate but you've got to have the drive the passion the ambition and the willingness to work those long hours because because it's worth it in the end and you you know there's a light at the end of the tunnel when you've got the business to a state where you've got the right people filling the right roles and you don't have to do everything but that initial stage it's full on all the time
0: a couple of quick questions to finish um, what piece of music makes you feel happiest when you hear it?
1: So much. <laughs> I, I love all kinds of music. Um, and it depends on, it depends on my the season. Um, so this, this summer, there were all sorts of, um, it's going to sound very cliche, so I'm very sorry, but I am American. Um, but a lot of kind of American country pop music. Um, Zach Brown band is one that we would listen to over and over again, and kind of made us feel like we were on holiday, even if we weren't. And that made us happy, and that made me happy. Um, so that that was my go-to for the last four months. But it tends to change um, with the season.
0: <laughs> and has that got you through lockdown and COVID? <laughs>
1: yeah, absolutely. Uh, How has that a- affected
0: your business, Kate?
1: Um, not not. Um, We haven't had any negative impacts from COVID, luckily. Um, We have the type of business where we, our solutions directly um, applied to COVID problems. Um, So we were able to very quickly provide insights into um, the secondary impacts of COVID. So not just where the outbreaks were, but things like port restrictions, port closures, Um, what a merchant vessel had to do when they pulled into ports based on COVID. Um, So in terms of the business, it didn't hurt us. It it actually helped to kind of upsell some things. And we provided quite a bit of services for free as well um, throughout COVID, um, which which helped. Um, And the team adapted so quickly to working from home. um, And we did... We did a lot of things to keep the team engaged. Um, we would have Funky hat Friday where when we get on our morning calls, everyone would have you know a crazy hat to wear. Um, we did that every single week that helped people kind of you know keep keep going. We had thirsty Thursday socials every Thursday, which again we would do a pub quiz or some variation of a pub quiz every Thursday and that kept people involved so From a team communication perspective, it didn't hurt us. Um, And from a business perspective, it didn't hurt us. Um, It did start to wear on people after a while, as I think it did anyone. So we started to get the team back into the office just to do kind of team building activities so people could have interaction. um, And and that helped. So we, we were really lucky throughout COVID.
0: If you were to invite one person to do the workplace happiness test to see how happy they were, in their jobs? Who would you invite to do it?
1: I'd be really interested in how how some of my old teammates um, felt actually. It'd be really interesting to give one of my old bosses um, the, the workplace happiness test and see how they um, scored compared to, to where I am now.
0: For this edition Uh, of the Workplace Happiness podcast. Kate, can I thank you? Uh, You've had an inspirational journey. I mean, to to set up a whole new way of thinking about uh, analysis, uh, to then work with the US government. And uh, I know that you work with all kinds of agencies. And then, of course, to set up your own brilliant, brilliant business and to do so well so quickly. Thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: thank you for listening for more on this podcast head to workall.co where you can find out how you can get happier at work